Father, thank you. Thank you for your great love of each one of us. And thank you for your pursuit in our lives. That you have been pursuing us before we were born. That you knew us in our mother's womb. And that nothing we do discourages your pursuit. You never give up. Thank you for your deep love and your pursuit for us. And so, Father, as as we open your word and look at the life of your son from the book of Mark, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several decades ago, I was a director. By the way, you will have to forgive my voice. It's just a little scratchy. Uh, But several decades ago, I was a director of a boys' camp in southern Mississippi, and I had an experience I will never, ever forget. While lining about 80 boys up at the end of the football field, to get ready for a new activity, I noticed that beyond them were storm clouds beginning to uh, gather. And then suddenly, a tornado erupted out of these storm clouds and began stretching toward the ground. Well, my eyes must have been as big as saucers when I saw that. I screamed, Tornado, run, boys! And they scattered in every direction imaginable. I mean, some ran toward the tornado, some ran away from it. I knew we needed to get to some kind of low drainage ditch or something, and the closest one I could think of was about 80 yards away at the other end of the field. I said, no, no, boys, follow me. And we herded them down to the other end of the field and where we had a, a ditch that was about a foot and a half deep. Have you ever tried to put 80 boys in a shallow drainage ditch? They don't fit. I mean, we had kids piled up two and three feet deep above the edge of the ditch. And it was at that point I looked the other direction and I saw the pool. So I grabbed the first two boys off the top of the pile and I started running toward the pool carrying them. I said, no, to the pool. And we got to the pool and I threw these two in. Uh, About 78 boys followed, along with about 10 counselors. And then we turned around and we watched the tornado hit the ground, come right down the football field where we were. Then it tore the roof off our pump house, pulled up a tree by its roots, and then took a left and came directly toward us. And I can remember thinking, huh, this is how I die. I thought my life would amount to more than this. When it lifted just before it got to the pool and dissipated in the air above us. Now, that had to be the scariest experience of my life. Well, two weeks later, when their parents came to pick up the boys from camp, I wish you could have heard the stories they were telling. I mean, as I listened, it was almost as if They thought we had planned that event as part of the excitement of camp. Every boy wanted to come back to camp and do that again. Now, can you imagine as a camp director telling parents, 
You know, if you send your sons to our camp, I promise at least one life-threatening experience. I mean, only a fool would say something so disruptive to the survival of their business. But you know that that's exactly what Jesus does in Mark chapter 2. He says something so disruptive, so contentious, that it creates a firestorm of controversy. In fact, turn there, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and you can follow along with me. It begins this way. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them, and they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Now, in the preceding chapter, uh, we learned that everywhere Jesus went, huge crowds would gather. I mean, he was healing the sick, and he was freeing the demon-possessed. And Mark tells us that he actually became so popular with the people that he could no longer stay in Capernaum. I mean, the crowds had forced him to retreat into the outlying areas. But here in chapter 2 of Mark, he tells us that Jesus sneaks back into the city, and it doesn't take long for the people to remember his special places he stays. And they find him probably at Peter's house. Now, the time has come in Jesus' ministry where he wants to be known for more than simply healing the sick or freeing the demon-possessed. And an opportunity presents itself when four friends show up with a paralyzed man. Now, when they show up, we really don't know much about this man. I mean, it's... The passage tells us he was paralyzed. Uh, His paralysis was probably uh, the result of some kind of accident. I mean, we really don't know the details, but I, I think we can assume that this man and his four friends were desperate to see Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what life must have been like for this poor man? I mean, his entire world was lived on his bed. Somebody had to feed him. Somebody had to carry him. Somebody had to clothe him. Someone would have to pick him up and turn him to keep him from getting bed sores. They would have to clean up after him after he soiled himself. I mean, you and I, we take our independence for granted, but this man will never know independence. His world is his bed 24-7. And I think we can assume safely that nothing could be done for him medically. I mean, the best this man could hope for is to be a beggar beside the road. He's got no dreams. He can't play with his children. He's a prisoner of his own body. Every day when he wakes up, all he can do is stare at the ceiling until someone comes and moves him. His world is a three-foot-by-six-foot bed. He can achieve nothing. He has nothing but four friends. I'd say four amazing friends. Look at verse 4. 
And when they could not come near him because of the crowds, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, what's not apparent to us in the text, but would be very apparent to this man's friends, is that in ancient society, disabled people were seen as outcasts. In fact, Roman law required that a child that was deformed had to be killed immediately after birth. But but in Israel, your disability took on a more sinister form. Your disability was attributed to sin. I mean, do you remember when Jesus and his disciples uh, ran into the blind man on the road? And the disciples asked Jesus, you know, who sinned this man or his parents? So I think this, this, these four unnamed men, they were really more than just friends. I'd call them a band of brothers. Now I say that because, I mean, they ignored social stigma. They, they set aside personal inconvenience. They disregarded financial pressure, not to mention the high cost of time and energy to be this man's friend. It was almost as if all Five were in a foxhole together. Now, these four friends, they end up carrying this man to where Jesus is staying, and immediately they encounter a problem. I mean, the house is packed, standing room only. People are sitting in the windows looking in. They're spilling out the doors into the street. I mean, Jesus is close. We could see him, but... We can't get to him. So close, but still far away. Now, these four guys, they're not sure what to do. One of them probably said, okay, what do we do now? Now, you've got to remember, this is a band of brothers. These guys are like Marines. They don't leave their fallen comrade behind for nothing. So they probably looked at each other and said, whatever we do. We get him in front of Jesus. Now, we really have no idea how he came up. They came up with the decision they did. I mean, one of them must have been an outside-the-box kind of thinker. Because when it became apparent that they could not get in to see Jesus, they must have gone into brainstorming mode. Now, the number one rule in brainstorming is there are no bad decisions. No bad ideas. So one of them probably said, well, you know, I guess we could wait till after it's over with and see if we can go see Jesus afterwards. Another one may have said, no, no, I got it. No, let me go in there. I'll yell fire. We'll clear the room immediately. Uh, the the out-of-the-box kind of thinker said, oh, oh, I got an idea. Let's dig a hole in the roof. Now, there's probably just silence after he says that. Somebody said, any other ideas? No, no, no. We dig a hole in the roof. It's big enough to stick the bed down in and we lay him right in front of Jesus. Well, they couldn't come up with a better idea, so they decided to, to go with it. Now, you need to know that by digging a hole in the roof, these guys were obligating themselves to come back and fix the roof. 
In other words, it was going to be double their trouble. But you've got to remember, this is a band of brothers. These are Marines on a mission for their friend. I mean, nothing's going to keep them from getting their buddy to see Jesus. So I imagine they probably climbed the steps that were next to the house. Most houses had them. They came up to the flat roof. They, first of all, were looking at it. They leaned over. They pulled back the tiles, probably stacked them up neatly. Now, they didn't have any uh, tools. They didn't bring any with them. They probably had to go grab some sticks, and they started digging through the dirt. And they got through the dirt. They dug through the straw. Then there was the, the twigs and the limbs until suddenly it just opened up. And they widened it, widened it enough so that they could straddle the cross members. They probably used ropes attached it to the bed and stuck the bed down through the hole so it went down right to where Jesus is. Now, notice what happens next, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, you kind of got to use your imagination. Picture in your mind Jesus is there speaking. He's in the middle of of saying something important, and there's this little dust just kind of filtering in the room, and then suddenly it was kind of like dirt and sand kind of falling from the ceiling. A twig comes down, some grass, I mean a limb or two, and then suddenly it, it opens up. There's light coming into the darker room, and everybody's looking up there wondering what is happening, and suddenly the end of a bed is pushed through the hole, there are ropes tied to it, and when it's lowered down low enough for them to see, lo and behold, there is a paralyzed man in the bed. And Jesus looks back up through the hole, and there are four anxious faces looking down at him. Now, the text indicates nothing was said I mean, there's no record of words being spoken. It's not what Jesus heard that moved him. I mean, Mark captures it beautifully. He says, and Jesus seen their faith. Their faith. Notice, it's plural. It's usually the faith of the person seeking healing that moves Jesus. But in this case, it's the faith of the four Marines. I mean, Jesus is so impressed with what these guys are willing to do for their buddy. He looks up at them. He sees their face. He looks down at their buddy and says, okay, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I can't help but wondering what's running through the mind of the paralyzed man. He hears Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And he's got to be thinking, but... I didn't ask you to forgive my sins. Don't you heal people? I heard you heal people. I mean, I want to walk and jump like everyone else. But notice, nothing is said by Jesus related to healing. And what about the Marines, the band of brothers? I mean, they've got to be thinking, I mean, we busted our backs getting this guy here. Now we're going to have to carry him all the way home, plus fix the hole in the roof to boot. I mean, what gives with this? 
Well, you need to know there's a whole lot more to the story than a man hoping to be healed. In fact, in Peter's house, there's not only a band of brothers on the roof, there's a body of rule keepers in the room. In fact, look at uh, verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were reasoning thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? So the text indicates in the room there were some teachers of the law. I mean, Mark calls them scribes. I mean, they were people that everyone respected. They were seen as spiritual giants. And these scribes, they prided themselves into being kind of the guardians of correct teaching. Now notice, Mark says they are sitting. Apparently, because of their position in society, they got the best seats. Everyone else is standing around them. These guys are sitting, and I kind of picture them sitting there with their arms crossed, looking at Jesus saying, just wait till you say something I disagree with. They're taking it all in. So you got to feel the tension that's going on in the room. I mean, the disciples of Jesus are probably on pins and needles at this point. And then Jesus increases the tension by saying, Okay, son, your son's sins are forgiven. And I can imagine Peter leans over to his brother Andrew and says, Oh my gosh, he has just poked a hornet's nest. We're in trouble now. I mean, that's the kind of tension that's going on. Now, notice, the scribes didn't say anything, really. But their minds are spinning, and obviously their facial expressions gave way to their displeasure with what Jesus said. And what Jesus said was actually so disruptive, so controversial, I think it disappointed almost everybody in the room. I mean, think about it, the Marines, the band of brothers... I mean, they're upset because they're going to have to take their buddy all the way home again. And the paralyzed man, I mean, he's disappointed because he still can't walk. you got the disciples, they're upset because Jesus has just poked a hornet's nest, caused them lots of trouble. And of course, you got the religious leaders and they are distressed because this is a man who is claiming to be God by saying that he can actually forgive sin. So what in the world is Jesus trying to do here? Well, I think, first of all, Jesus knows that rule keepers have a hard time seeing human needs. I mean, these teachers of the law, these scribes, couldn't see the need that was lying right in front of them. You see, it's really impossible. It's impossible to really love God without sharing his heart for people. In fact, the, the truth is the more spiritually mature you are, the, the more your heart aligns with God's heart for individuals and care for others. And that's precisely what the teachers of the law had missed. I mean, I grew up in a church that prided itself in rule-keeping. I mean, in this church, we measured spiritual maturity by 
How often you attended, how much you gave, what you didn't do, didn't smoke, didn't drink. Do you know how God measures spiritual maturity? By how well you and I love people. In fact, it doesn't take much time studying the Scripture without discovering that God is constantly thinking about people. I love the way John Ortberg puts it. He says, the mind of the Father moves towards people in the way the mind of a shepherd keeps coming back toward his lost sheep. The way the thoughts of a poor woman are obsessed with finding her lost coin. God can no more forget about people than a nursing mother could forget about her baby. God is obsessed with finding, redeeming, and loving people. Do you remember when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, how he answered? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. I mean, if I'm honest, I have to admit there are times I'm, I'm more like the scribes than I am like Jesus. I mean, I, I'll look right past a need lying in front of me. Because I'm focused on even a need in my family or among friends or colleagues. Because I'm focused on my goals, my agenda, my selfishness. And I forget that as a Christ follower, we are all called to break through ceilings for people. Now, what's really amazing in this passage is that Jesus shows his love for the paralyzed man and the critic at the same time. You see, Jesus could have addressed the man's physical needs from the start. I mean, healing a paralyzed body was no big deal for him. But notice, he postpones this man's healing out of his love and affection for who? His critics. These religious people. Look at verse 9. He says to them, which is easier. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, arise, take up your bed and walk. Now, that question brought the scribes' thoughts out into the open. I mean, they had rightly concluded that only God can forgive sin. And by Jesus saying that he forgave this man's sin, he was, Jesus was deliberately claiming to be God in the text. Now, there's nothing wrong with the scribes' logic in the text. The only problem is they failed to see that the one standing right in front of them was indeed God. But Jesus doesn't give up on these guys. I mean, he loves them, so he poses a question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? Now, it's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven, because the validity of that statement cannot be proven or disproven. How would you know if you really forgave that person's sin or not? But to say, take up your bed and walk, that can easily be tested, easily be verified. I mean, can you see what Jesus is doing here in the text? He wants to give his critics the evidence they need so they can see clearly that he is indeed Messiah, God incarnate. So he offers his critics a beautiful, practical proof. Look at verse 10. 
so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sin? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Can you, can you see it? Jesus loves his critics as much as he loves the paralyzed man. And what his critics need is a little bit of practical proof. And so Jesus looks at them and says, okay, so you can have the proof you need that I can forgive sin. Watch this. And he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, I want you to get up, pick up your bed, and walk home. And the paralyzed man gets up, grabs his bed, and he begins to walk. See, one of the beautiful things about being a Christ follower is that Christianity is an intelligent faith. It's not a foolish one. I mean, God has given us the ability to think, to acquire knowledge, to discern. Christianity is an intelligent faith, not an irrational one. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart can't rejoice in what my mind rejects. So the question becomes in the text, is there sufficient enough evidence to warrant believing Jesus' claims to be God? You see, God never asks us as Christ followers uh, to exercise blind faith. He's always asking us to, re- uh, to exercise an intelligent faith, to examine the facts, to look at the evidence. I mean, that's why Jesus is offering practical proof to the religious leaders here showing He's indeed God. But there is a catch. Here is the rub. Evidence cannot develop absolute certainty. In other words, you can't prove anything historically with absolute certainty. Let me say it this way. In two weeks, Patty and I will get on an airline and we're going to fly from here to Kalamazoo to speak at a family life conference for that weekend. Now, can I determine with 100% certainty that plane will not crash? No, I can't. But but I can determine with probably 90% certainty that we would arrive at our destination okay, that the plane won't crash. But here's the rub. I can't take 90% of myself on the plane. I have to take 100% of myself on the plane. You see, your commitment will always go beyond the evidence. Always. So can you prove with 100% reliability that Jesus is God? No. But is there enough evidence to warrant a 100% commitment? Yes. You see, the Christian faith has sufficient proof, but it doesn't have exhaustive proof. Only God has exhaustive proof. That's why physicist Blaise Pascal said this. There's enough evidence to convince any man who is not set against it. But there's not enough evidence to force a man into the kingdom who will not go. You see, Christianity is an objective faith. It's not a subjective one. I mean, in our society today, you hear people say things like, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe it. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you believe, I mean, whether the resurrection took place or not historically. 
What matters is do you believe it took place? Now, that would be just like arguing, I don't believe in gravity, so it's okay for me to step off a ten-story building. It really doesn't matter what I think, what I believe about gravity. If I'm stepping off a ten-story building, I'm plummeting to my death. You see, faith always has to have an object, and the object of the Christian faith is Jesus. The question becomes, is Jesus a reliable object of your faith? By the way, that's one of the reasons Jesus rose from the dead that we'll celebrate next weekend. It was a practical proof that he was who he claimed to be God. And if God, he can do what he claims he can do, and that is forgive sin and give eternal life. And that is exactly what Jesus is offering his critics in the story. Look at verse 12. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now, the benefit to the scribes is they got the practical evidence they needed. And the benefit to the paralyzed man is his sins are forgiven and he's healed of his paralysis. But notice, it's more than that. I mean, if he's been paralyzed, his muscles have all atrophied. He can't stand up, much less pick up his bed and carry it someplace, even though he may not be paralyzed. Do you see what Jesus is doing in the text? He heals the man and he throws in muscle tone to boot. (laughs) You see, in this whole passage, what we have is Jesus extending grace to his followers and his critics, to both. And he does that by looking at them through the eyes of grace. You see, when we look at others through the eyes of grace, then you and I begin seeing like Jesus sees. How many of you have seen the movie, A Beautiful Mind? It's a story of John Nash, brilliant mathematician, but... It's a story of how he wrestled with schizophrenia. At one point in the movie, his wife, Alicia Nash, is asked by a friend, how do you cope with your husband's devastating disease? Listen to what she says. Watch the screen. John always spoke so fondly of being here at Princeton. And Hanson is running the department now. So he keeps reminding us. Reminding us. (laughs) John won't come near the campus, though. I think he's ashamed. So, Alicia, how how are you holding up? Well, delusions have passed. They're saying with medication and low-stress environment. I mean, how are you? I think often what I feel is obligation or guilt over wanting to leave, rage, 
John against God. But then I look at him and I force myself to see the man that I married. And he becomes that man. He's transformed into someone that I love. And I'm transformed into someone who loves him. Not all the time, but it's enough. I think John is a very lucky man. So unlucky. Did you hear what she said? She said, I force myself to look at him and see the man I married. And he becomes the man I married. He's transformed into the man I love and I am transformed into a person who can love him. That's looking at people through the eyes of grace. That's what Jesus does here in the text. That's why he treats the critic and his followers the same. You see, Jesus had this uncanny ability to look at everyone in the world through the eyes of grace, which meant he forced himself to see the beauty that's there, but that's not all. He also saw the potential. As followers of this Jesus, when we leave here, you and I have the same challenge as we encounter the world. Father, thank you for this wonderful story where the heart of Jesus is seen so clearly and his love for us certainly there, but his love for his critics. Thank you that you have given us this story as well as a faith that is rational and that is an intelligent, and you don't ask us uh, to exercise blind faith. Help us love like we see Jesus doing it here in the text. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if this is your first time at, at Horizon, let me just encourage you, uh, drop by the hearth room as you leave. Uh, we would love to greet you there, put a name with a face. And uh, offering boxes there out in the hall. And we'll see you back next week. Thanks for coming.